the story we were told about Mary from the family was that she had died in childbirth. That's what everyone thought. And we had no idea that it was anything other than that until we had that conversation with Bindle in which she told us the story of um, Mary falling down on the landing in the middle of the night. So what do we do? We found her death certificate. Um, do we want to have a look at the death certificate, Annie? We we definitely do, Annie. <laughs> More detail, please. Yes, yeah. What's that mean? The death certificate of the second wife of a person I'd never heard of until a month ago. That's totally normal. <laughs> Good. Okay, I've got it. Yes. All right. Um... Do you want to talk us through what you're seeing there, Elizabeth? Okay, so it's dated 1943, 7th of December. Her name, Helen Mary Dancy, female, 36 years old, wife of John Horace Dancy, MD. Okay, cause of death, one, syncope, okay, acute hematologic anemia, then we have the signature, John Dancy, widower of deceased, present at the death. Oh, my God. The signature of the registrar is Thomas Day. That is my dad's name. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's not my father because he was born in 1946, but he comes from a line of Thomases. <laughs> That's my dad's name and his dad's name. Was your was your grandfather yes. also a doctor? I don't think they. That's that was actually really freaked me out. Wow, wow. I will find out. Wow. Will you let Will you let us know, please? I'll let you know. Yeah, I'll be on the phone straight after this. So, should we tell you what we found out about this? Please do. Um, so we have the causes of death are given on the death certificate. There's a primary cause of death, a secondary cause of death, and then any other stuff basically. And the primary cause of death is syncope which is fainting. Okay, that's a bit weird, right? How do you die from fainting? Yeah. And then the secondary cause of death it gives, so the thing that brings on the fainting is something called acute hemolytic anemia, which is not an uncommon kind of anemia in pregnant women, but it's rarely fatal as far as we understand. And the death certificate is not suggesting that that's what killed her. The primary cause of death, according to the death certificate, is syncope, so I was a bit confused about that because, you know, Bindle says she hit her head. Wouldn't that be the primary cause of death on the on the certificate? Wouldn't it say like, you know, cranial trauma or something? So I ended up speaking to several doctors about this and they all said that if Mary had died of a head wound, they would expect there to have been a post-mortem and no post-mortem was done. Um, you know, one of the doctors I spoke to said it could be that the death certificate is absolutely kosher. But it's also possible that if you did want to engage in foul play, you know, if Mary died from hitting her head on the wall having fainted, it would also be possible for the death certificate to look exactly the same uh, as it did if she'd been hit on the head and killed. Um, I, I, basically, what we've learned from this is that apparently um, death certificates are not very useful evidence because they're not very specific. Um, do we know where she was found? Yes, we do. She was found on the landing outside the bedroom, oh my which is the same landing that the altercation between Fayther and Morris happened on.
Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm continuing my interview with Sam. We're diving into Mary Garston and her baby's death, and her father's. As you just heard in the clip at the top of the episode, Mary and the baby died on the same landing that Dr. John Dancy said Morris shot at him on. The doctor that came round to the house in the middle of the night and certified Mary's death, according to the death certificate, was a Dr. M. Cartledge. Well, that's my best guess based on the handwriting on the death registration. It also stated that Dr. John Dancy was present at the time. And the registrar was Dr. Thomas Day. How well did Dr. John Dancy and the certifying doctor who came round in the middle of the night know each other? Was he the doctor who was at med school with Dr. John Dancy, who he broke into the hospital morgue for? It's a question well worth asking. As we discussed in the last episode, it was a different doctor who certified Mr. Garston's death in the same house, but it was the same registrar, Dr. Thomas Day. We get into this in much more detail in this episode, and I know many of you really want to hear the next part of this fascinating conversation with Sam. So let's dive back in where we left off, with Sam detailing the Garston family history. We did find out that obviously Mr. Garston is Edmund Lewis Longmore Garston, and he was born on the 13th of April in 1865, and he was one of eight children, and interestingly had a sister called Helen, um, which might be where Mary's Helen comes from. But yeah, re- really fascinating. He was born out in India. He marries Helena, Olga Lawbeer, on 7th of November 1906 in, I'm going to pronounce this really badly, so I apologise, but Gazipur in India? I'm thinking it's Gazipur in India. I can stand corrected. And Helena was the, the daughter of um, the reverend that married them, so Reverend H. Lawbeer. I've got to say, I've been staggered with what is out there in open source intelligence and information. It's been really very interesting to look into this side and this part of the story. Like you say, he was a police superintendent. He didn't start as a police superintendent. He started lower down in the service, but he joined the United Provinces of Uda Police in on the 20th of June, 1889. And he spends pretty much all of his life in India Obviously, he goes on to have children. Really not clear what happened to Helena. I don't know if maybe she died or whether that marriage broke down. But Helen returned to um, the United Kingdom. Now, there you're talking about Mary, who who we know as Mary. Helen Mary, yes. Sorry, yeah. Helen Mary, I, which I will, I'll call her Mary from now on. <laughs> I think I've been in my head, I've been thinking of her as Helen for quite a few days now. But she travelled back and she was a nurse, so we did know that anyway. So Mary Mary was a nurse, which might be where she met Dr John Dancy or maybe she knew Dr Naomi Dancy. And I know that was certainly explored a little bit in the podcast, but she was a nurse and she was brought up in India. But in 1934, she travels back to the United Kingdom and arrives on the 5th of March into Liverpool. Um, and she's due to the address that she's given is a house in Hazelmere. So what I found interesting is looking at the arrivals registered there, there was no sign of Edmund. So she travelled back by herself. 
So then she obviously spends a few years here and obviously her and Dr. Dancy marry in the October of 1938. There's a four-year period. But what's quite interesting is that I did find Edmund's arrival back to the UK. He did stay in India. So so Mary travels back first, spends four years here, obviously meets Dr. John Dancy somewhere along that timeline. But he, I'm just going to get my dates right now. So Edmund arrives back from Bombay on the 26th of April, 1938. So that's the April before Mary marries Dr. John Dancy. So they marry in the October 1938. So he travels back to the UK six months before the wedding is due to take place. But what's interesting is that Mary travels back with him. So she's gone back to India to go and retrieve him, to bring him back from the UK, which potentially for me, and he's of older years then, so he would have been, he's 70, what was that, making 73? I think he dies shortly after, he dies literally a couple of weeks after his 75th birthday, obviously at Queen's Road. So whether he was of ill health, But Mary goes back to India. So she comes to the UK, does whatever she's doing for four years, maybe practicing as a nurse, and then goes back to India to go and retrieve Edmund. Edmund comes to the UK, and then there's an entry in the census record in Dorset and Paul in 1939. So the September of 1939, Edmund is living in an address in Paul. And when you look at the census register, The other people shown at that address are of older years. So for me, that would suggest potentially a nursing home, maybe. Possibly, yeah. Possibly. There's a potential that that's potentially a nursing home here. And obviously we don't know, but we're surmising from the evidence that's available to us. Now, in the podcast, in episode six of the podcast, which is about the letters going back and forth, I found this quite interesting, actually. The bulletins. Yeah, the bulletins. Thank you. So in the episode of the bulletins, it obviously talks about Edmund moving into the the Queen's Road address. And the the letter goes to the children saying, I can see that there will be big alterations, my dears, and you need not imagine I am doing this with my eyes shut. I've seen it coming and I've been working for it for a long time. I find the language used there really interesting. I mean to satisfy Mr. Garson and hang on to him for the rest of his life. Fascinating wording in that letter, I think. And and obviously we, we can talk that through. The mention of I've been working for it and it's been a long time coming, suggesting that there's planning that's gone on there. And I mean to satisfy Mr. Garson and hang on to him for the rest of his life. Well, that wasn't a very long time. I think, I believe Tristan says next that Edmund moves in and he moves in and spends a couple of years with them and if we believe the census and then look at the date that Edmund actually died that's not the case at all so he was still living 1939 September in Dorset by April 1940 he's deceased in the house in Queen's Road he's dead yes the end of April the 30th of April 30th yeah 
And I think that is interesting, Sam, the language, because it's devoid of any compassion or endearment or love in terms of, you know, I've been working for this. And yes, there are these modifications we're having to make, i.e. it's a bit of a pain. I do have my eyes wide open and I've been working towards this. Or what does he really mean? And let's not forget Dr. Naomi Dancy and Morris died. They were, Naomi was murdered. It was in November 1937. Mm. So 1937, we know that Mousy, Mary, was moved in pretty quickly. It was a whirlwind relationship. She was introduced to the children in letters within weeks of Dr. Naomi Dancy being murdered, which again is very unusual for that to happen. And it makes me very uncomfortable. And these deaths, you mentioned timeline. Analysts are always, always <laughs> hyper-focused around timelines, <laughs> particularly regarding behaviour. We really are. Right? The, the behaviour of people. And, and I do find that timeline incredible, that every three years someone died in that house from 1937, because Naomi and Morris, 1937, November, 1940, you've got Edmund, Mr. Garston, and 1943, you've got pregnant 36-year-old Mary dies. And so who's really joining it all up? You know, who is joining this up? Yeah, exactly that. And that's all about, you know, the comes back to the asking more questions, isn't it? And with it, your analytical head on, you know, that's always what we do. We always ask more questions. And certainly in the case of Helen Bailey, that Ian was convicted, I think it was, is it 2017? Convicted in court? 2017. Yes, February 2017. Yeah. But the case of Diane obviously had gone under the radar because his narrative was believed and no one asked enough questions. So, you know, that is very much the role of the analyst is to be that question asker. And do you know what it doesn't do is make you popular. That's what it doesn't do. And, you know, sometimes you, you exactly. can be, you know, an, on an investigation team, you can be the outlier. If you're suddenly standing up and going, hang on, what about this? And the investigation team is focused elsewhere because they're following certain lines of inquiry. And you, you have to just keep, you know, have that tenacity to be, hang on, hang on. This doesn't make sense. And sometimes as an analyst, I think, you know, you park a bit of information so you can have a piece of information into an inquiry and at the time it doesn't make sense and you're looking at it thinking mm, it's interesting but it doesn't fit in with any of the other timelines or narratives or associations that I'm looking at. But if you've got an analytical brain that will sit in the back of your brain until all of a sudden another piece of information comes in and you'll go hang on a minute I've heard that somewhere before and you know I think that's something that every analyst does it's it it's in our DNA, I think, to park what are seemingly useless pieces of information to other people, but then suddenly fit into a much bigger, wider picture as cases start to unfold. Exactly right, Sam. And that's what makes A, us sometimes unpopular because we are saying something different and unique in a room full of sometimes people who are saying the same thing. But it also just shows how important it is to be tenacious, to keep asking those questions and to see a story. You've got the micro story, but you've also got the macro, the big picture. And that big picture stuff is often around a timeline and probabilities and possibilities. And that's really important to do because most cases do have a beginning, middle and end. If you pick just one part of it and you show that to people, it can lead you to a very different conclusion 
an outcome. Yes. Now, I say that because this case, it's everything that this case is about. If you have a family member telling the story who's getting pressured by other family members, you might not hear the full facts of the actual case. But an investigative journalist, I don't believe, would overlook these other deaths in the house. Why didn't Ghost Story pick up on it? Why is it my, Mary Garston's name wasn't even in the show notes? And that's something I did say to Tristan because he buzzed me and people will see it on Twitter. He wanted to pull me up on the fact I'd spelt Mary Garston's name wrong, the surname, the last name. But the fact is it wasn't written anywhere. And that's the problem when you write people out of their own stories. You want it to be factually accurate, but there was no real mention of Mary and the baby being lost or the father. So they get written out the narrative. I feel it's incumbent upon me and I owe it to these five people to tell the full story. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you because people can make up their own minds based on what we're talking about. We come back to what Mr. Garston died from, what was written up on the death certificate. But it's the fact that people should have all that information before they can make their own determinations. If Jackie and I always said, we'll let people decide let people decide. They can hear the facts and the evidence as we talk them through. And of course, as an analyst, I put emphasis on certain things. Jackie puts emphasis on other things. That's why a good detective working with an analyst is such an important combination together because you see slightly different things, but together as a team, you can get to a much better outcome if you work together. That's what we saw with June Hawkins in the Griselda Blanco case, her working with a, a male detective with Riaz and then with Al Singleton meant that they got to a, a much better outcome. They took down Griselda Blanco. Yeah. A really difficult job. You know, like with Richard Baker, you wouldn't get that same outcome if you didn't have good analysts working with a detective and asking those questions. I'm convinced of it through decades of doing this work. Yeah, 100% behind you. I'm a, such a massive believer in you've got to have that good working relationship. You know, whether that is that you're an analyst or a lead analyst that's working with an SIO. And equally, the SIO has to learn to listen to the analyst, trust what the analyst is saying. You know, they're coming from a position of fact and they're the person in the investigation looking at all of that information that is coming in. So when you get either a good detective analyst combination or a good SIO analyst combination, it is like a magic formula. And that investigation will move forward at a far greater pace with far greater accuracy than, you know, if those parties were working independently or if you didn't have an analyst. I do feel like I need to give a massive shout out to all the analysts in the UK. You do amazing vital work every single day and I just you're so right that they are absolutely the unsung heroes in loads of investigations so we see you and we appreciate you we probably. do and most are not self-serving they're not self-serving they're not doing it for promotion or anything else they do it because they enjoy the job and they don't always get the commendations or the accolades. And that really bothers me. And I really think that they should. But let's go back to uh, Mr. Garston and what was on his death certificate, because that's important of what it was believed that he died from. Because, you know, I saw on the death certificate, which you had pulled, it said that he died from pernicious anemia. 
Mm. Anemia is number one, the number one cause of death, and pernicious anemia as number two, which there's a combination of factors here. And I am, out of the deaths that occurred in that house, the facts surrounding them, I am more comfortable with that death given the combination of age and a potential underlying medical condition. And you've got to bear in mind that he spent the majority of his life in India. So albeit in a very good position professionally, so probably would have had access to good medical care out there. But in that time, was there enough information about, you know, diets and dietary requirements and anemia and iron? And I don't know. I don't know. Because, you know, to say that we but can't But he lived with a doctor, Sam. He lived he did with a doctor. <laughs> so, he did. so I hear what you're saying, because I too was like, he was of a certain age, but he was okay until September 1939. And he moves in with them. And less than seven months later, he's dead and anemia, you know, my question was, how common is anemia? How common was it to die from anemia? And if you're, of course, we know now you can boost your iron and so forth, but he was living with a doctor who said that he was making plans and you would think that he would be very interested, Dr. John Dancy, in medically keeping him alive. So, you know, I don't know those questions. I don't know from the Garstons because Mary died from anemia ostensibly. Now, did anemia run in the family? Was that something the Garstons could pinpoint and talk to? But the fact that they both died from anemia within, you know, a couple of years of each other, yes, it could be hereditary. That could be something. So you can't make something, to coin Hamish's phrase, fantastical out of the health side. But I do think it's interesting the question should be asked. Was he not injecting Morris with vitamins? Well, apparently so. Apparently so. He was helping with the eyesight. He injected him every Monday. And that's, again, why it's interesting. The murder-suicide happened on the Monday. There was a question mark from me and many of the other experts. Did he inject him that night? And was it just vitamin Sam? Because he talked also about quietening him down and I don't think vitamins have that impact. Well, I know vitamins don't have that impact. Yeah. And, you know, the whole, you know, we will undoubtedly circle back around to it, but it, it comes back again to the use of language, isn't it? People leak information through language that they don't realise that they're leaking. And, you know, if you've got the ability to break something down and look at it, there are sentences in the whole podcast and obviously the other information that we've been looking at Sentences leap out and grab you. And it's because you're looking at the language and understanding them in the behavioural context of the situation. The word quietening, really, I was, you know, as soon as that was said, I was like, well, that's that's not going to be down to, no, that's not going to be down to vitamins. And Tristan does, you know, he explores that, doesn't he? Of the, I think he has a conversation with Kate, doesn't he? Where he's like, well, was it vitamins? Was it not? Was it something more? You know, and also then mentions the potential drugging of Morris. So, but if vitamin treatment was part of treatment for Morris, then injecting vitamins, ergo, could you then not inject iron to improve anemia? Whether you do that on a pregnant woman back in 1940, I don't know, but maybe for father, you know, we will never know is the, pro is the problem. Well, maybe not. And let's not forget that this was Bindle's narrative. The daughter... Bindle said that her father said he didn't want Mary getting up in the middle of the night because of her anemia. 
And then she's told to rush home and help because Mary died and she died in childbirth. I just couldn't shake the feeling that Bindle was repeating back exactly what she'd been told by her father, a man whom she idolised, and probably even more so after her mother was brutally murdered. And don't forget she was told that her father was almost killed too. It's worth underlining that children are extremely malleable, and even more so after such a traumatising and life-changing event, like your beloved mother being murdered. They're also much more likely to accept and repeat what they're told, particularly from a surviving parent whom they adore. And that would be further compounded with them being at boarding school. Your home time with your parents is limited and precious. It's not like if you're at day school when you're with your parents 24-7. You tend to get the best bits of them when you're at boarding school. And also, if you have a nanny and a housekeeper, I mean, how much time did Dr John Dancy realistically spend with the three children? I have to wonder, has Bindle romanticised things in her retelling? These are her reflections and her perspective. I mean, she's almost a 100 now, but I often think that people can rose-tint things, and particularly if you've got someone who's a psychopath who has groomed them their whole life. And I do believe that Dr. John Dancy did groom them. And therefore, we have to take what's said with a pinch of salt in terms of, you know, it shouldn't be the thing that is held up with more weight, the bulletins, the letters going back and forth, that he was this tremendous father. I've heard that so many times before, even when you have a coercive controller, a child will still say what a what a great dad he is. And then when I dig into really what's going on in the relationship, he's not a great dad at all. So again, we just have to question these things. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, You cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. 
Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The youngest daughter had just left a boarding school, isn't it? She hadn't been to boarding school before. So there's always been somebody, a, you know, a child in the house and possibly the housekeeper in the house, which did when I heard that, I was right, okay, so the youngest daughter's just gone to boarding school. Why is there a housekeeper? And who's the house? What's the housekeeper who's coming in to replace the normal housekeeper? Because the normal housekeeper is on holiday for a, a few days. Why do you need a housekeeper for a few days if it's just yourself and your wife who's out at work all the time? And, and Morris, obviously. I found that odds until. I found the news article about the 11-year-old niece that was in the house at the time. Yes, that was in the case papers, actually. Yeah. And is that a mistake? By some, was there an 11-year-old niece of Dr. Dan? You, know, you don't know if it's Dr. Naomi Dancy or if it's Dr. John Dancy. But there is mention of an 11-year-old niece who wasn't disturbed when events happened. Yeah, she was asleep at the top of the house. That was in the police file. The housekeeper's statement was also there and it was very confusing. And let me say, did not corroborate Dr. John Dancy's narrative of the three shots that were fired. And the question for me about the housekeeper was always about the fact that she would be loyal to the person who pays her. And then when I found out about her having a child out of wedlock and being rescued by John Dancy and her being called Dormouse, well, I believe that she would probably give a clear narrative that Dr. John Dancy wanted her to tell. But why did he wake her up on discovering the bodies? That was the question mark for me. Why did he wake her up? Was it to make it look as if he was going in and finding the bodies? Because Morris hadn't killed himself at that point. He was locked in the bathroom and he had a firearm. So why would he go and wake up the housekeeper, I, you know, the child apparently wasn't woken, but why put them at risk too? That was always a question mark. Exactly. The 11-year-old child seems, if that is the case and that's accurate reporting, so if there is a child in the house, why is he not more concerned for their, their safety? That's a, a small child, which, so is it earlier in the day that he, he goes out with Naomi and leaves Morris is it earlier that same day where Morris discovers the insurance papers? I can't. Yes, he, he had gone out and he believes that that's when Morris discovered the insurance papers. So has he left an, or has, have they left an 11-year-old child with a housekeeper and an unstable individual if he believed he was unstable at the time? Yes, because Naomi was out working and then lecturing till late. If it's accurate reporting there was a child in the house, I don't understand how she has disappeared from all the narrative in his account. There's nothing in his account, is there, to do with her? Um, She's not mentioned in his police statement, but the child is mentioned in the police case file. He doesn't call out to see if Naomi's okay 
you know, his his first thought is, what have you done? He doesn't call upstairs to see if the housekeeper's okay. If there is a child in the house, he doesn't check to check her safety. It's all very strange. And there was no account of him shouting, call the police, call an ambulance. There was no account of him on seeing that Morris had a gun shouting for help or assistance. And then, of course, you've got the narrative that he dodged a bullet and people just seem to accept that. You cannot just dodge a bullet. It's just so fanciful that Morris had the revolver and, as he said to Dorothy Sayers, he had a towel around the revolver to hide the fingerprints. Well, if Morris was going to kill Naomi Dancy and kill himself, why would he worry about the fingerprints? They're things that, that Jackie and I talked to, but the whole... He ducked down to avoid a bullet and the bullet whistled past his ear. It's just so ridiculous, particularly as he says that he turned the light off. So he's saying that a partially sighted man who's blind in one eye can barely see out the other, who can barely walk because he'd had a fall. There's a suggestion he may have had a stroke as well. You have to have dexterity to do these things. And for Dr. John Dancy to become the hero in the story... Even if people say, oh, well, he he just lied to make himself the hero, why? What purpose does that serve to make up a whole new narrative? And and let's not forget the four-page statement, which I did analyse, that he made to the police was a very different narrative to what he told Dorothy L. Sayers just weeks later. Now, for me, when I went on the FBI statement analysis course on deception and veracity, one of the key planks of the training is that someone who changes their narrative, who was there when a murder happened and they changed their story, you have to pay very close attention to them. Mostly that points to deception. But what's the purpose of the lie? And that's always the point. What's the purpose of the lie? What purpose does it serve? I don't think people, you know, like generally there it's understood how much detail and when you give an analyst a statement, that statement will be turned inside out, upside down. Literally, that analyst will know everything about that statement. So, you know, and that's exactly those things that you're looking for, massive detail about things that aren't really relevant. And then at the time of the offence, you know, suddenly the detail becomes absent or missing or, you know, very, very scant. So... Well, Dr. John Dancy's long and extraneous prologue is an indicator of deception. In his extraneous prologue, he implicates Morris, and then there's all these other seemingly random details which seem totally unnecessary on first reading, albeit they're necessary and relevant for staging purposes, in my opinion. And interestingly, there are only 34 sentences in Dr. John Dancy's four-page statement which are specific to the actual homicide event itself which jumped out at me straight away when analysing the balance of the statement. That again, you know, and yes, I took every word, every sentence apart. And that's not even including the foxing, the use of the word foxing. And you compare it to any other narrative. His words, what he chose to say, and we have to remember that weeks later he called Dorothy L. Sayers and she wrote down notes, seven pages of notes of that conversation because she was so disturbed not knowing any of the other details, she was so disturbed by what he said. And then she talks to one of the senior police officers who she's on the, you know, the crime writing group with. And he basically says, don't worry your pretty head about it to her. You know, these things, you you cannot just ignore them. And the fact that 
The women are called mousy or dormouse. And again, that just talks to the power imbalance. And we have to think about the power imbalance. Who holds power when talking? Who holds power that their narrative is just accepted without questioning? And I always look at that now as a seasoned crime analyst who's worked thousands of cases I look first of all now for the power imbalance, particularly when I may believe there's coercive control or a coercive controller. And oftentimes their narrative is just accepted and they're good at what they do. And that's what you always have to bear in mind. You're looking for things that corroborate what they say. And what are the things that refute it? There are some things with him that you just have to ask more questions about. There's a beginning, middle and end with this story. And Ghost Story Live, they did a live event more recently. And I believe that that live came out of the series that Jackie and I did, where we said, we'll put it to the audience. You know, people who listen, they can make their own minds up. But that was before talking about these other, what I would call loose ends that were overlooked by the podcast. You know, when people listen to the three episodes, the poll that I took when the final episode dropped, 100% of people believe Dr. John Dancy was guilty. Well, in the Ghost Story Live event that had 1,000 people there, they actually had the majority, 36%, believing that Fader, in inverted commas, Dr. John Dancy, was not guilty. Wow. <laughs> and so that leads me to the question of, how's that possible? You know, you've got one case, you've got Ghost Story telling it one way. And, you know, I now know at that live event, Jackie did do a two minute video clip. You had Hamish Campbell's narrative being posited again with him saying effectively that what Jackie believes and what I believe, that it's a better story. And people want to believe the better story, but there's no evidence that he did it. And we weren't the ones with the microphone at that event. But what it does tell you is when someone has a microphone, if they just give you a partial part of the story, you might arrive at a different conclusion. If you don't talk about Mary Garstin and her being pregnant and her sudden and unexpected death in 1943 at the age of 36, but her father died before in 1940 in that house, these were all deaths in the same house in Queen's Road, and that there was a death every three years. If you don't provide that context, people might believe that there's no real evidence that Fader, Dr. John Dancy, is anything other than a liar. Mm, I think as analysts as well, the minute, the minute you put a coincidence in front of an analyst, they are going to deal with the statement and pull it apart and look for a... It's like watching magic shows as a kid, isn't it? Like, oh, how, you know, how did... Oh, maybe they did that, you know, and they move the rabbit under the hat with you always looking for the the why and the how and yeah not enough questions get asked you know it goes back to the if you're going to tell a story tell the whole story if you want people to have an informed decision making process tell the whole story and then and then let people decide and I think people want to do that with cases now, but you have to put the full facts and, and the evidence and the full context. That's why I talk about the macro, the bigger picture. But let me share with you, Sam, that you'll recall this, no doubt, but in the Q&A December episode, Elizabeth Day was really taken aback by the fact that Dr. Thomas Day was the registrar. And she said, oh, well, hang on, you know, I've got Thomas Days in my family line. I'm really curious to know whether that's someone, you know, in one of my ancestors. 
And she said that she was going to find out. Well, I just want to quote what Annie then said. Annie was one of the producers on Ghost Story. She said, if it's not true, i.e. if it's not your one of your ancestors, we don't need to know. We need to just assume that it's true, okay? And Elizabeth replied, I think as you've established, we can just tell the stories we want about our own families. So, and Annie interrupts her and says, exactly, exactly, that's perfect. Mm. And that for me just summed up everything about Ghost Story. Yeah. And I think it's been a difficult journey extremely difficult journey for everyone that's involved in it and narratives have been oh manipulated is too too strong a word I feel but narratives have been followed that come out with a more comfortable ending for people you mean the ghost and the psychic and the seance that being the yeah I think Tristan and Annie have both said haven't they that you know, have they used the word tongue-in-cheek about it? I I just found it, yeah, I found it a bizarre. We are coming from very different viewpoints on it, I think is probably the best way I can put it, that we will always come from the hyper-critical, hyper-investigative state. You know, you've been asked to do a job, you've been asked to look at something, and you'll do that with your most professional head on. There's obviously, you know, clearly family investment investment there and a narrative that they they followed their narrative that they wanted to but that's the challenge isn't it I mean it depends on the questions that you ask and if you don't want to know what the answers are and it's uncomfortable well perhaps you shouldn't be telling the story and that's investigative journalism or what a detective and analyst does I mean it's about independence and having objectivity and that things can be very uncomfortable but if you don't have any skin in the game you have no investment in which way it comes out. And that's why it's important to be independent. So as I said, I I felt for Tristan, but he was conflicted. Yes. You know, there was a conflict of interest. And I still believe that there's a conflict of interest. But the audience at Ghost Story Live, they didn't have possession of the full facts. And the information should have been presented by someone in an unbiased way if they truly wanted to then throw it to the audience, if they truly wanted a poll that was representative of them listening to the full facts, the micro and the macro, and then people deciding, otherwise, what's the point? What's the point in doing that? I asked my listeners, they listened to Ghost Story, they listened to what Jackie and I said, I'm not invested either way on it being one narrative or another, And you're right, what we're interested in is the facts and the evidence, what you can point to, even with an inference. If you can point to how you got there, inductive, deductive reasoning, you can show that audit trail, right? Yeah. And that should be transparent. You have to test the metal of these things and you have to be prepared to. And it's not always comfortable. Yeah. It's analyst school 101, isn't it, really, in terms of when you first become an analyst, you are taught pretty early on that you are the objective advisor. You're the objective advisor to the investigation or the SOO. So you've got to remain objective throughout that. And if, you know, and if a situation and evidence doesn't fit what you thought or what you hypothesised that situation to be, then you park that. And parking it is so important because it might become relevant later on. But you park that information and you start again. So this is all about the, you know, looking for intelligence gaps and, Right. So 
we we followed the evidence and we've hypothesized about a situation but actually that's not what the evidence has shown us stop start again look for you know new lines of inquiry look at where your intelligence gaps are go and regather the information and that intelligence cycle that we had drilled into us when we first became analysts starts again and it's right and sometimes you don't you know sometimes it doesn't lead you where you want to want it to go or you anticipate but want isn't the right word where you anticipate that it's going to go based on your initial assessments and that's fine you just have to start again you regroup and you start again but maybe that doesn't make such a good story and that's where you know the analytical <laughs> process the investigative process meets with entertainment and it's not always a a comfortable fit. But for me, I felt very strongly that I owed it to, initially it was Dr. Naomi Dancy and Mary Garston and to Morris Tribe to re-examine all the facts. And Jackie and I both did that because when we heard all this new information, we then revisited everything that we thought we knew. When we heard Hamish's very clear, absolute view that the police got it right in 1937 and that because of the hesitation marks that's absolutely what it was without any consideration for anything else and and I still don't know whether even at Ghost Story Live they had a, a video of him I still don't know whether he's listened to the full facts of the case I don't know if he knows about Mary Garston and that she was pregnant and her father whether that would change anything for him because I don't know what what he knows but he was so absolute to the point that it challenge both Jackie and I as females. We then go back and we become introverted again. We go back to all of our notes. I've got all my legal pads here. You check your analysis. And, you know, ideally you would want to sit down with those who have a different view and you put your heads together about why one thing and not another. And that's what we did at the FBI when I was there for a number of months. That's what I did at New Scotland Yard. You would have those uncomfortable conversations and you would normally come arrive at a better outcome. But this has been all very piecemeal, the way the the story unfolded on Ghost Story. And people have to remember that I didn't speak with any of the other experts. I didn't have the full facts. None of the experts did. Lots of people are saying, I would love you to do another podcast law, actually investigating it and bring all those experts in. But I feel now talking with you, we've dug deeper into the five, the five people who died in the house. People can make their own minds up. But I always invite my listeners to be curious. And that critical thinking is is really important. Don't just accept one thing because someone tells you that it's so. You have to really weigh up what evidence there is to support that hypothesis. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be, if you could take an old investigation and overlay all the techniques and methods that we use now, I'd very good friends with um, Joe Millington, who is an amazing blood pattern analyst, um, forensic scientist. And my goodness, if she'd have had access to that bathroom in um, back then, I, I would love to have known what she would have made of that crime scene. But sadly, that is obviously not where we are. I do find that Hamish, I've met Hamish, I've, I've worked with him briefly on the Homicide Working Group. I find it strange that as a detective, if, if he has had access to that new information, how does, why would you not question it? Why would that not make you think, right, hang on, I need to go back, I need to regroup. If he's, Hamish, if you're out there, let me know. But it's, um, yeah, definitely, why, why? 
it, like the very nature of a detective. Why would you not question it when new information is made available to you? Exactly. That's uh, one of the key questions for Hamish. And I'm sure lots of my listeners will have more thoughts and questions about it. And in fact, many of my listeners wrote to me about Mary and their concern for her and for her father. And that's really where this level of my curiosity was already peaked. And then you and I started talking about it. And you did me a, a solid of digging into uh, the census data and, and checking for if you, you know, to see what you could find. And that's really what it takes. You have to just keep asking those questions and not just rely on, on what you're being told. So an amazing family as well. Sorry, just a, the Garstons, clearly an amazing thing, you know, and I can understand for the Dancies. Sorry, I know you're just going to wrap up on that bit. But for the Dancies, that line of interest stopped with Mary. Very sad. Obviously, the baby died so very sadly. There was no further lineage there, as it were, of the Garston Dancy family. So I can understand why there that their interest is going to focus on the Dancies. That is human nature. But the Garston family are out there. And there are the Garstons are appearing on family trees that are private family trees. You know, they're sitting on their family trees. Their family deserve to know what happens to their relatives as well. Absolutely. There is a, a voice there for them. And one of the things that I also thought was interesting with Mr. Garston dying was that there was an inheritance of £9,800, which doesn't sound a lot by today's standards, but that was just under £900,000 back in the day. So that's a substantial amount that went to Dr. John Dancy and to Mary. And of course, when Mary died in 1943 and the baby dies, that bloodline is wiped out, which meant that all the money went to guess who? Yes. Dr. John Dancy. And we can't rule that out when we think about motive. It's really important to join those things up. And as I said with Jackie, and we both agreed any form of insurance claim in the wake of someone's murder or death, of course you would be looking at that. Any good detective or analyst, it would be immediately who benefits, who gains. And, oh, it's Dr. John Dancy. Every time. Every time. So is he just someone who's very unlucky? Question mark. Was he just somebody who these terrible things happened around him? He was extremely unlucky. Or is this worth asking more questions about him? And I don't believe that it's right just to believe him because he was a doctor and just chalk it all up to him being a liar who wanted to be the hero in his own story. He didn't just want to be the hero in his own story. He erased the women who were significant to him. And he fabricated that story in the first place. Yes. And Dr. Naomi Dancy was the mother to his children. She was an extremely brilliant woman. And he erased her from the family line to the point that Kate didn't even know her name. That is what he did. And he did the same with Mary. So I'm afraid that this isn't just something that is without extreme consequence. And particularly when we talk about women, because I really, to me, that's another major red flag that a brilliant woman who was outshining him died in such a brutal way that actually it's extremely rare to have a case where someone's shot in both eyes and you have threats that were apparently made by Morris, as Dr. John Dancy said, about her eyes, specifically about her eyes, 
a threat that's not cooperated anywhere else. And that, again, is another red flag that seemed to be like staging to me. And it's so rare for that to happen and to, for two women to die in their own homes. Mm. You know, immediately you think domestic violence, domestic homicide, when you have two women dying in the middle of the night in their own homes and you think about who has access to them, who is around them. So you're constantly looking at things. I mean, for me, I have a heavy focus around coercive control, domestic abuse, but that doesn't mean to say I see it wherever, in every case, I look for the hallmarks of it. And coercive control is not just about doing terrible things to someone. It is what it sounds like. It is about control, i.e. creating a power imbalance so you come out on top and you are the person who comes out on top and your needs are met continuously you are the person that manipulates everybody else around you. You coercively control them. It does not always look like physical violence. And that's one of the biggest things that irks me when you have non-experts who are talking saying, well, there was no physical violence on Naomi. Well, I wouldn't expect there to be. There's not in every case. It's only when a victim fights back or does not want to be dominated or controlled anymore that you start to see physical things happening. But there can be cases where the only act is the, the murder event. And I'm sure your, your listeners are well versed with this, but in terms of all the incredible work that you've done to uh, highlight risk factors as well, in pregnancy, pregnancy and finances are big risk factors. You've seen it time and time again. You've highlighted it via Dash and all the amazing work that you've done there. And here you've got two big risk factors, pregnancy and the potential of money. Exactly right. And pregnancy, again, people don't talk about it enough, but in America, homicide is the leading cause of death for pregnant women. Homicide, not a medical complication. And when you break that down, and it's in the medical journals, when you break that down, as I always say, it's not homicide, it's domestic abusers, it's coercive controllers, it's the men who are trying to control those women. And when they get pregnant, that control well, it can be that the woman starts to focus more on themselves. It could be that, you know, bringing a child into the world changes everything. I mean, here you've got Dr. John Dancy. Maybe he felt he had done the child raising part. The children were older, they're at boarding school, and then she gets, the younger wife gets pregnant. I don't know what was going on in that relationship, but I do know it's a high risk. And I do know many cases where women have been killed and no questions have been asked, even when they're carrying a child. So yes, when you layer in finances, Sam, when you layer in the fact she was much younger, more malleable, well, did something happen in the relationship where she, not just the pregnancy, but maybe she wasn't as willing to be as malleable. Maybe she was starting to question him. Maybe Dr. Naomi Dancy had started to question him. I don't know, but I have to raise those questions because even when someone's seen to be of previous good character, and yes, there are those testimonies about Dr. John Dancy, that he was a great guy and made me laugh, lots of you know great stories. He was a great GP and so on, a great doctor. But it is possible he hoodwinked those people, and it is possible that he could still be coercively controlling in his own relationship. So I've seen that so many times, and people talk about this previous good character. Mm. It's interesting as well that, um, that Edmund Garston was a police officer. Yes, a police superintendent. Yeah, that he's used to asking questions. He was living in the home. Has he not liked what he's found? And it could be that that changed things. It could be that he started to ask more questions. Yeah, we will never know. We will never know. 
Well, we won't know unless there's someone from the Garston line who know more about what was going on, you know, in terms of the relationship. But there are, we don't always know what's happening behind closed doors, but that doesn't mean to say that somebody's not coercively controlling. And as I said many times, he was coercively controlling in every other part of his life, even writing a 3,000-page memoir. Well, Dr. Naomi Dancy didn't write a 3,000-page memoir about how brilliant she was. Why did he feel the need to do that? What was the purpose of doing that? Of if, Even him claiming that he wrote songs that he didn't write, even the one about the two wives dying, what was the purpose of him claiming that? And as Mark Dancy said, oh, he loved, you know, he reveled in a deception well told. Well, that tells you about someone's psychopathology. That doesn't mean they're necessarily harmless with it. And as you said, if you blur fact and fiction, you know, it's, it's a form of gaslighting. It's so that people don't really dig into who you really are, that there's always this kind of, well, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe not. Oh, he's a lo- lovely guy, he's a bit of a laugh, but actually there's this part to him. But what purpose do they all think that these things that he did served, breaking into a morgue, all of these things that are extraordinary, mm. and yet they still chalk it up to, well, he was a bit of a Jack the Lad, you know, that kind of... It's how many Jack the Lad moments do you need before... You go, hang, hang on a second. A white man of a certain age just being bleed, but you layer in doctor, then what are the chances that just goes unquestioned? Well, for us, we've been asking the questions. As, as I always say to my listeners, you can make your own mind up. You are very thoughtful as an audience. I have to, you know, emphasize that because the things Amazing that people listeners. write to me, yes, you are just next level at questioning things, being curious, not just accepting and the thoughtful responses that I get. So please keep them coming in and we're going to wrap there. Unless there's anything else you want to say, Sam, because I'm going to wrap this and then see how you are comfort wise. I was not going to give you number four, was I? But there you go. (laughs) There it is. There we go. We We weren't going to talk about it, but for me, I feel it's important that you hear from another independent person and, and their thoughts and their analysis and and what you concluded from some of the the digging that you did. So thank you for joining me, Sam. Important for the Garstons, I think, as well. Important to acknowledge them and their family and their family lost. Absolutely. Until next time, my lovely listeners, and thank you so much, Sam, for joining me and for talking all of that through. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.